Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Before we start the show, I want to let you know something. My latest novel, Personal Fable, is free for the next uh, few days. So if you're hearing this ad, it's currently free if you're a Kindle user. So just look it up on your Kindle. If you don't have a Kindle, you can even get one of those for free by getting the free Kindle app on your phone. And then head over, get Personal Fable, have a read, and if you love it, leave a review. And I hope you love the story. Now, let's get on with the podcast. P.S. The promotion runs the 11th, 12th, and 13th of March. Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, talking about chapter 8. Uh, no prompt, not much to say. I liked this reading today. George wasn't annoying, says Swim. Palestrina had used plain chant melodies in all his masses, turning them into pattern music I interjected if you want a religion in music let your choir sing only plain chant plain chant or plain song is also known as Georgian chant forms the core of the musical repertoire of the Roman Catholic Church thank you very much for that tidbit George is very astute here I indeed yet I think oh sorry Tecrific says, indeed, yet I think there's a point to be made that shying away from history, trying to hide or revise it, is not a good strategy. It's important to remember that what Catholic Church did when it had power, without that knowledge, we will be ill-equipped to deal with the challenges of the future. History never repeats, yet old ideas can crop up with new and appealing clothing, and without the tools to recognise the resurrected old tyrannies, however well-dressed and well-behaved it present, uh, we will find ourselves in dire straits yet again. Um, but I don't know if you saw Terrific, but he's since said that he likes Jonah Hill. So, <laughs> um, you know, um, let's let's just keep reading. Ah, uh, okay. Orlando was being sung when I arrived, and I listened, forgetful of the fox. And very soon it began to seem to me strange that so beautiful a name should be allied to such ugly music. So I fell to thinking how a theory often goes down before a simple fact. It had been mine this long while that a man's work proceeds from his name, and still forgetful of the fox, I pondered the question whether Orlando de Lasso was or was not a beautiful name, deciding at last that it was an affected name, and therefore not beautiful, whereas Palestrina is naturally beautiful, like his music, Palestrina. There is a sound of strings in the name, and he could not have failed to write beautiful, beautifully for strings if he had written for instruments. Palestrina, strings, strings, I murmured. Seeking Edward and finding him without much difficulty, so striking his appearance when he sits listening his hand to his ear, an old mellow maniac drinking in the music. As soon as my errand was whispered, he shook his head, saying that he could not leave just now, for the choir were going to sing another motte by Orlando de Lasso, and when that motte was finished, there was one by Nanini, which he would not like to miss. The peasant will never wait so long, I said many a time, as I lingered about the church, and when all the motets were finished, and we returned to the avenue, the peasant and his fox were far away, and there was no means of discovering them. The lion, well, he is dead now, dead and buried, and that is all I remember of a town which I praise God I shall never see again, as a recompense for having accompanied him to hear the contrapunt 
Vitalists. Edward was coming with me to see Rubens. We should not arrive in Antwerp until late that night. Edward lay sleeping opposite. It seems strange that any one should be able to sleep while on his way to Rubens, and I thought of the picture we were going to see. It seemed extraordinary, inconceivable, impossible, that tomorrow I should walk down a street into a cathedral and find myself face to face with the descent of the cross. Edward sleeps, but art keeps me awake. My thoughts turned to Florence and Stella, whom I had arranged to meet in the cathedral and pass the time. I very soon began to talk myself, began to ask myself, sorry, which I would retain if the choice were forced upon me, the immense joy of the picture or the pleasure of meeting two amiable and charming women. In the ordinary course of my days, there would be no hesitation, but Edward had been my sole companion for the last six weeks, and in our journeys abroad he imposed importance of the rule upon me that no acquaintances should be made among the flocks of English and American women that congregate in the continental hotels. I had always abided by this rule of the road, leaving him when the strain became too great. At Dresden, some years before, and some years later again at Munich. Those separations had been effected without difficulty. Edward never complains. Only once did he mention that I had broken up our tours, as he would put it, for the pleasure of some abandoned women. And so, in this tour, it had been a point of honour with me to allow it, at all costs to my feelings, to run its natural course. As it was to end at Antwerp, I was well within my rights in arranging to meet Florence and Stella in the cathedral. I say well within, for my friends did not belong to the class of women to which Edward took special objection. Women whose sole morality seemed to him to be yield to every impulse of my heart. Of the heart, sorry. My friends were painters and of considerable talent, and in Edward's eyes, art redeems sex of much of its unpleasantness. He knew nothing of the meeting, and it did not seem to me worthwhile to mention it as we walked down the street. It would be stupid to interrupt our emotion by introducing any contentious question. We were going to see Rubens in what is perhaps his lordliest achievement, and when the cathedral came inside I laid my hand suddenly on Edward's shoulder, stopping him to say, Edward, isn't it wonderful that we should meet that we should this moment be walking down a street to see Rubens? Let us never forget it. Let us try to fix it in our memories now before we enter. Rubens for the moment blotted out all remembrance of Florence and Stella, but as we wandered around the cathedral, memory of them returned to me and my heart misgave me, for I was beginning to think of Stella, perhaps more than was altogether fair to Florence. To confide such scruples as these to Edward would be, would at once prejudice him against both women. And I wanted him to like them, so with the intention to deceive, I continued to assist size, speaking of the beauty of the drooping body as it slips down the white sheet into the arms of devoted women, the art of Greece, we said, re-arisen in Florence and carried to Antwerp on the calm overflowing genius of a Fleming. We contrasted this picture, so restrained and concentrated with the somewhat gross violence of the ascent of the cross, 
painted immediately on his return from Italy, his first abandonment to his native genius before he had discovered himself. The crowning of the Virgin is said to have been repainted in some places. Edward was anxious to know if it were so, but art criticism is difficult when one is expecting two ladies, though one knows they will not willfully disappoint. There is always a danger that something may happen to prevent them from coming. The picture is one of the most enchanting that Rubens ever painted. He seems to have forgotten the theological aspect of the subject, and to have remembered all that much of it which is nearest to his heart, a beautiful woman surrounded by beautiful children, and to have painted with no other intention than to make beautiful fair faces, clouds and pale draperies seem more beautiful. The ease and grace of his incomparable handicraft held my attention while looking around for Stella, tall and shapely, and Florence, whom nature has not made less well, but on a smaller scale. At last, two backs were perceived in a distant chapel. The moment had therefore come to tell Edward that I had just caught sight of two ladies, acquaintances, artists, both of them. I must go and speak to them. Shall I bring them back and introduce them? They are artists. Somewhat to my surprise, Edward did not arise any objection to meeting them. On the contrary, he said it would be interesting to hear them talk about his pictures. He showed himself very affable to both, speaking to Florence about the supposed repainting of the crowning of the Virgin, and to Stella about the quality of the black behind Magdalene's head in the descent from the cross. At the door of the cathedral I mentioned that I was lunching with the ladies and consented to join us, and when the ladies left us, he made complimentary observations regarding their demeanour and intelligences, asking several questions about their work and not one about their private lives. After lunch, we went to the exhibit of Van Dyck's works, which was being held in Antwerp that year, and after viewing his monotonous portraits after one after the other, the residual impression left on the mind was of a painting lackey, an impersonal mind transcribing an impersonal world, something less vulgar, more individual. I declared we should find Ghent, a small town in Flanders, renowned because of its possession of one of the world's masterpieces, Van Eek's Adoration of the Lamb. And we went thither accompanied by Edward, who had not seen the picture. It astonishes the painter as nothing else in the world can, except perhaps the miracle that decrees that to flowers their shapes and hues. We visited other towns and saw some fine memlings, but better than those do I remember the afternoon that I walked with Stella up a long grey platform. Edward walked with Florence, telling her that I should deem my life worthless if she did not allow me to accompany her to Holland. As I have said, my tour with Edward had gone, had been arranged to end at Antwerp, so the change from Edward's society to that of these ladies would prove beneficial to me, as for much for intellectual as for sensuous reasons. I am penetrated through and through by an intelligent, passionate, dreamy interest in sex, going much deeper than the mere rutting instinct and turn to women as a plant does to light, as unconsciously breathing them through every pore, and my writings are but the exhalation that follows the inspiration. I am, in contrast, Edward, an essentially social being, taking pleasure in and deriving profit from my fellows, but he is independent of society, and we both suffer from the defects of our qualities, the moments of loneliness that fall upon me at the close of a long day's work are unknown to him. He has never experienced that spiritual terror which drives me out of after dinner in search of somebody to talk to, a book and a cigar, I have never been able to smoke a pipe, and not enough for me, uh, are not enough for me. And the hours between nine and midnight are always redoubtable hours. 
How they are to be wild away is my problem. I admire and envy Edward's taste for reading. That bulky man can return to his rooms, even in the height of summer. Life, uh, light half a dozen candles. He does not like a lamp. And sit down behind a lofty screen. Drafts give him colds. With a long clay bench, uh, sorry, a long clay between his teeth and a book on aesthetics in his hand and read till midnight and that night after night his life going by all the while it is true that he pays for his contentment his mind began to harden before he was 40 and I had to warn him of the precipice towards which he was going one cannot change oneself he answered he is glad to see me if I call but he feels no special need of my society one day I said Edward which would you prefer to spend the evening with a very clever woman or a stupid man After three or four puffs at his pipe, he answered, with the stupid man. But man, no more than woman, is necessary to him. Is not his self-sufficientness, if I may coin a word, admirable? Never have I known it to fail him. At Dresden, it is true that he expressed regret that I was leaving him in the middle of our tour, but how shallow that regret was can be gathered from the indifference with which he accepted the news of my decision to accompany the ladies to Holland. We asked him if he would come with us, but he said that important business awaited him in Ireland, and he told me privately that he was not frightened away by the ladies, but he did not care to go to a Protestant country, for he never felt at home in one, and did not even seem to understand when I asked him if he minded the long journey to Ireland alone. I shall be with you in Tillyra for a month later, and we shall then be able to make the necessary alterations in the tale of a town. At the moment, at the mention of the alterations in his play, his face clouded, but he did not betray that anxiety which would have approved him a true artist. Only an amateur, I said, and went away with the ladies, our intention being to study the art of the low countries in Amsterdam, in Harlem, and in Hague, to stop at every town in which there was a picture gallery, an account of our aesthetic and sentimental tour would make a charming book. Our appreciations of Reesdale, Howells, Rembrandt, and Van der Meer, and Florence's innocuous, sorry, incautious confession that no more perfect mould of body than Stella's existed in the flesh, perhaps in some antique statues of the prime, though even that was not certain. Ugh, we get it, dude. You're so cool and sexy. All right, thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.